This is The Guardian. Gegenseitiger Respekt ist die Basis für ein gutes Gespräch. Im Netz ist das alles andere als selbstverständlich. Und woher zur Hölle willst du das wissen? So eine vorlotte Bitch wie dich sollte man an den Herd fesseln, dir dein Handy wegnehmen und... und wir feiern dich dafür, dass du dich als Frau nicht unterkriegen lässt. Keine Angst, du bist hier nicht allein. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. It's an international break, but we've pulled out all the stops. We'll do a bit of England, speculate on whether Southgate's loyalty will ever end and wonder if players are more likely to get picked if they've got three million Instagram followers. There's the home nations all trying to qualify and then we get interesting. Trips to Mongolia and Pakistan's first home game since 2014. And without giving any publicity to other football podcasts, the host of The Price of Football, Kevin Day and Kieran Maguire have written a book about football ownership, so we'll chat to them. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. the panel today ed aarons how are you very good max how are you nice to see you robin cowan welcome hi max um i'll be performing the role of barry glendening today and not not really right. understanding why i'm here <laughs> oh really good well good luck with that and occasionally saying i don't care or bits that don't make the edit which are that's a stupid question ask me another one uh, but you're welcome to do those uh, paul watson hello hi max Sort of an international break regular. This is, uh, you know. I know it's an international break, but I get the message and I'm like, oh, gosh, it's coming up again. <laughs> so every squad needs one, right? It's absolutely huge. Um, on the subject of Barry, Michael says, has Barry been called up for international duties? Lang says, Glenning's absence is suspicious. Can we please have a word from Barry's agent, whether he's been contacted by Birmingham City? Uh, we did mention it a couple of weeks ago at the end of the pod. Clearly, no one listens that far uh, to this nonsense. He's on a month sabbatical. He very recently, uh, seconds ago, tweeted a picture uh, of himself standing next to an elephant uh, where he looks quite sad and quite sweaty, uh, but he has yet to paint this elephant. So hopefully that is how it remains. Uh, Right. Uh, So England then, top of Group C. Uh, They play Italy on Tuesday and they've got the Socceroos uh, on Friday night at quarter to eight. Um, They've got a six-point lead over Italy, who do have a game in hand. Uh, on Saturday against Malta. So presuming they win that, then Tuesday's game might be a little bit spicy. One of the interesting things to come out of this squad, Robin, I guess it's sort of Southgate and loyalty again with Maguire and Henderson still there. And I I have a theory, and I'd like to test it on, on the three of you, which is that he is sticking with the guys that will get the job done. And then once qualified, he will experiment or even let them go set them free and then bring in your sort of Ward Prowse, Rico Lewis, Tamori, etc., with a bit less pressure on them. Agree or disagree? I'd love to see it, personally. I don't I can't see him doing that, to be honest. It's just not been his pattern of behaviour. I'm still absolutely baffled why Harry Maguire and Jordan Henderson are still there. Um I I'd like it though. I mean and that would be but that'd be really out of character, wouldn't it? We think, yeah, it would it would be very surprising. I mean, he's very loyal to players, and we've seen that obviously with with uh, Calvin Phillips as well, who's still in the squad, even though he 
he, he is sort of well, how, what number of choice is he at Man City in centre mid after the weekend? Um, I think that's been the secret to his success in a way that the, the sort of consistency of selection throughout his time as manager has has really helped players. But I don't know, maybe it's time to mix it up a little bit now that they're you know pretty much qualified and there's quite a lot of time to experiment. Yeah, I, I think I mean you make a good point about Calvin Phillips. It does seem. It seems strange. I think last pod, Paul, we were criticised for being a bit negative about Southgate. Perhaps the first time, I'm very much a Southgate apologist, I think is what they're called. You know, I really believe like, this is the second most successful England manager of all time. He deserves the chance to lead us to the Euros, to semi-final pain or whatever he leads us to. But I did feel he's sort of got a bit chippy last time. And we wonder if we sort of started to see the, you know this good ship just slightly faltering and perhaps we shouldn't be so critical given, you know, we will qualify barring some disaster. Yeah, it's funny. Um, <laughs> apologist is quite a negative <laughs> word. It but, is, um, yes. But I, I'm, I, what am I, disciple? I'm not sure. You know, I'd be in the same boat, actually. I've, I, I think any of us who are old enough to have watched England over a number of years can't help but find it slightly amusing to see people's anger and you know venting this frustration at an England team that is waltzing to qualification and you know will be amongst the favourites to win a World Cup which is something that you know when we used to watch us labouring to a 2-1 win in wherever it was you know Moldova and um, of all the people you should be able to come up with a, a small team Paul <laughs> off the top of your head <laughs> the thing was the ones popping into my head were unlikely like Macau yeah. or Sri Lanka yeah, but, um, but yeah you know I, I think having seen past England teams and, you know, also how he a lot of the time has conducted himself as a man, as a leader. It it does seem very harsh that people are, are judging him in this way. But this is the, the crazy thing about international management, I think, is that at tournaments, it's really quite random. You you know, maybe random, not quite the word, but you have so few games and the result of those games is so massive, whether you're a success or a failure. So we have this enormous protracted process of getting to the World Cup and whether he is seen as a massive failure or success will be dependent on one or two incidents probably in one or two games. And so it's really hard to say, isn't it, at this point, whether, whether you know, this is all a master plan, he's creating this very strong unit that will then go on to success or whether he should be experimenting and that people will only know when they're wise after the event. Yeah, the, the issue for me is that in all cases, it's just a lack of decent alternatives, really. And I think with Maguire, now that Stones is back, I think, I mean, I don't want to, preempt Gareth but I think we might see Gay and Stones tested as a partnership and that is or Dunk would you say or no I'm a Crystal Palace fan no only, no, yeah. <laughs> <only> just, <laughs> no, no but yeah absolutely potentially but I think that the, the balance of uh, Gay plays on the left and um, Stones is, is what he's, he's hoping will be the centre-back partnership potentially or may, maybe not you know there's a lot of time to go but the real issue, I think, is is because uh, also you had Colwell who could come into that reckoning. But I think the real issue is in centre mid, where actually Bellingham, as good as he is, has created a bit of a problem because he's now playing more advanced for Real Madrid, scoring all these goals. Whereas before, he was hoping perhaps he was going to be our, you know, number eight, all playing midfielder, running the game. But now we've just got another number ten, when we have you know so many already. We have Madison. And Kane, who drops back into that position as well, playing up front. And then, uh, you know, plenty of other players, Foden as well. But that's actually what I'd like to see Foden given a chance in a very, in a much deeper position so he can control the game a bit more. But oh, that's interesting. 
Gareth and Pep don't seem to see him like that. But, you know, back when he was playing for the under-17s, that's what he was doing. He was the number eight, really, playing the ball from deep. Because we don't really have anyone like that still. And that's, that's the big Ward-Prowse is a bit unlucky then. Yeah, Ward-Prowse potentially. But is he is he of good enough quality to win a tournament in that position? Probably, no offence, probably not. Good, good technician with the, with the with the, with his free kicks, but you're talking about somebody like Modric to you know run the game, and I mean he's a, he's a one in a million, but yeah. So I guess what you're I mean what you're saying is you know if you there's a three right and and Rice is one and Bellingham is one, and you probably if you're putting round pegs in round holes, which obviously very few England managers have ever done, then Madison's unlucky because Bellingham is playing there, right? You couldn't bring when you could bring Bellingham deeper. Madison does drop for Spurs, but that would be it would be risky, right? And actually, if you look at Arsenal, their midfield is better when Rice has somebody next to him who's a bit boring, like Jorginho or Partey or something. Yeah, well, that, that that's the other. I mean, yeah, I suppose against the best teams, you probably do need two holding ones. In, in which case, Phillips is really good at that, isn't he? He can he can do both roles, and somebody like Mount who is really off form at the moment. I think he long long term they were thinking he could be that person, but it's not it's not looking good at the moment. So yeah, it's a it's a real issue. Uh, unless they could develop another sort of voice to go alongside him and then that would really free up Bellingham to do what he wanted and and, and the front three as well. But yeah, it's it's an issue with the just quality of those midfielders which we we've always had. And now there is a fullback crisis, Paul. You know, in times we had about we had a sort of we had an eleven of right backs at one point. I'm sure there was a, like a we could have picked eleven. I think if you picked Max Aaron's, you could get an eleven right backs at one point. And and then we had like you know you had Shaw and Chilwell who were they're two good left backs. And now you're left with Carl Walker and Kieran Trippier, which is fine. I mean that's good, but it's quite interesting how that injury can really affect the squad. Yeah, it's often that way, isn't it? You only really realise that that suddenly you're really quite short in a position quite suddenly. And you, you you think, well, there must be someone else. And you're running through the names thinking, there really isn't, is there? But I would say that that's true of a lot of nations and a lot of nations that go on to win tournaments. Actually, their squad isn't deep in every single area because I just I just don't think that's realistically possible. And so I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's a, a cause for enormous concern. I actually really like Trippier as well. I think I think I don't have any huge worry about him. So yeah, it, it's it's not ideal, but I would say you look through any any team in the build up to the World Cup, you'll find some a little Achilles heel in there that you think, oh, it's just because we're England, we already see it and see it dooming us. Whereas other nations are probably like, yeah, but it'll be fine. <laughs> what, do you know what we have? What we've amazingly managed to do is not say the name of the player regards fullback or midfield that is named all the time and gets more coverage than all other footballers on earth. Ed, your thumb is up. Trent. Trent, could he do that? He did do that job in midfield. Did you mean Tyreek Mitchell? Or oh, I did mean Tyreek, yeah. So could, <laughs> Trent Alexander-Arnold could do that midfield thing next to Rice? Potentially, but yeah, I mean, he's not playing there for his club. So true. True. Makes it very difficult. I mean, he did it against Malta brilliantly, and yeah, but that was Malta. Um, but yeah, potentially he could. I think that's the only way he's going to get in the England team, isn't it? Let's be honest. He's he's not going to play right back because no, he's just not trusted by Gareth, and you know they don't play that system. Quite an interesting um, interview with Ollie Watkins uh, uh, with David Heitner in the paper, um, 
and he could feature against Australia. I mean, Kane tends to play all the time, doesn't he? But um, Ollie Watkins said, I think I go under the radar. I'm not talked about enough profile-wise. I know I've been producing on the pitch since Unai Emery came in, but it goes under the radar. Um, he doesn't have a, an account on Twitter or X. Um, and uh, he has done 11 Instagram posts since the start of the season to 373,000 followers. He said, a lot of people have said to me, I need to push my profile. A guy I work with commercially is always saying to post more on Instagram. It's kind of, I wouldn't want to put myself out there that's not authentic and not myself. I mean, clearly, Robin, that shouldn't matter, should it? And, and I mean, I, I can't see, I, you know, I don't think Gareth Southgate would care. But do you think there is this kind of implied thing that I, you know, Callum Wilson is... A sort of equivalent level of player. He does a podcast, you know. I don't mm. know what his following is, but like, do you think that actually makes any difference? Well, you'd hope it wouldn't make a difference in terms of selection, but like in terms of endearing maybe to the sort of the fan of England who just watch the England games, there may be because, yeah, as you say, Callum Wilson, you hear from him a lot. He's got his own podcast, you know. He's, you know, you see him out there a bit more. I think it's really depressing that that's that's the state of affairs we're in, though. As a professional athlete, you should just, if you want to just concentrate on that side and not have to worry about your social media presence, that's absolutely fine. But then you do get like James Madison, who posted, I think yesterday about, it was very funny about Trent still asking for another replay, you know, for the Spurs-Liverpool game. And that's kind of, you know, we quite like that, don't we, as sort of consumers, because it, it kind of shows their, their lighter side. And James Madison's obviously very good at that. I'd hope it's nothing to do with, you know, how how you're perceived in terms of a, as a footballer, but maybe it is to us. But I'd hope, I don't think Gareth, hopefully Gareth Southgate's not well. You're not getting enough numbers on your, <laughs> no, you're not getting enough retweets, right. I'm afraid. So <laughs> This might be a stretch, Paul, but this idea that, you know, if you do, if you have got a great social media profile, that you will endear yourself to fans so that when you are on the pitch, you are more likely to get a nice reception and it's easier to play if everyone is behind you rather than if they are, you know, I suppose indifferent. People aren't going to be furious with Ollie Watkins because he hasn't done an Insta story about, you know, going to Dubai or, you know, buying his wife a handbag or something. Uh, I buy into it to a certain point. I'd almost come, come at it from an opposite perspective. If you're a coach, I'd imagine you quite like players that just shut up and get on with the job. I, I imagine what you what you don't really want is players that are either distracted or seem distracted by their other concerns. Although I think, to be honest, players have enough time and energy to to also do whatever they want on social media and play football. But I imagine as a coach, what you don't necessarily want is players who maybe are going out and venting a lot about what's going on within the camp. You know, I'd say those are the players that as a coach, you'd think, yeah, I, I'm not sure I necessarily like that you're airing every single thought you have about anything and and it I cannot see Southgate as a real kind of slightly old school football-y kind of man caring at all about social media in a positive sense I could see him thinking let's shut it down if players are talking too much or if he feels they're distracted but no I, I agree that I think fans are very malleable by by social media and it's a big part of a player's role now I think is how they engage with fans but I don't think it's a selection issue I um I did get a social media manager for a month many years ago, who told me it was sort of, it was sort of quite painful. Sort of told me I should be posting at certain times 
like just before shows, like when I'm at my most relevant. I should have like tweeted a picture <laughs> before the podcast saying I'm just about to go live. The time of day that you're most relevant has really oh. scared me. Like, it's like, like a black mirror yeah. type thing, isn't, isn't it? it? What a grim <laughs> idea. Oh. When, am I mo- when am I most relevant? I mean, I don't think ever, really. Let's be brutally honest. About 15 years ago? Yeah, probably. You're absolutely right. Sorry. No, no, absolutely right. About 2008. And, and it's hard to tweet from then, isn't it? Like, I can't go back in time. Um, England have requested to go through qualification for Euro 2028, despite hosting the tournament. Good idea or, I mean, absolute recipe for a fucking disaster, isn't it? Like, you could just see it. Oh, no. What are you doing? That is a risk, but, you know, anyway. Um, Wembley, the Principality Stadium, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, the Etihad, uh, Everton Stadium, their new one, uh, St. James's Park, Villa Park, Hampden Park, the Aviva in Dublin and Casement Park in Belfast are the stadia that are going to be used. I don't know if the other home nations have said, I will qualify too. I can't imagine. But they're probably going, you know, we'll take the spot if we can. Uh, so we played the Socceroos on Friday. Graham Arnold got Gus Hiddink and Ange to turn up and say hello to the players. I don't know how many ex- any international manager would get two relatively successful ex-managers back in to say hello. It's quite a nice video that they... Uh, uh, they ben popping in. Yeah. With, <laughs> with Kevin Keegan. In. Yeah. <laughs> Kev, he's got some excellent views on football at the moment. Yeah, he'd be really good to uh, get in. Um, and I suppose there's a memories, Ed, of 2003, you know, when uh, Sven made 10 changes at half-time. International debuts to Rooney... Paul Konchesky, I think Franny Jeffers as well, when they when we lost to, to Australia. Yeah, I remember remember it not very well, but yeah, I do I do remember it. And uh well I think yeah, it was Rooney and Jeffers were supposed to be the the strike partnership for the next decade, weren't they? But I didn't really work out like that. Only one of them did well. Uh, um yeah, it be, should be an interesting game. I'm going to Wembley on on Friday. It'd be good to see Australia how how they get on with uh, a new generation of players that they've got at the moment they don't have any superstars right now do they but um well good luck to them uh it's thought that uh, a message of peace and unity will be conveyed um before the game on friday the fa are going to announce their plans today following the horrific and and like totally heartbreaking loss of civilian life both in israel and gaza according to the bbc the fa is unlikely to light the wembley arch in the colors of the israel flag because of fears of a backlash from many following Israel's response to the deadly attack on innocent Israelis by Hamas, following the siege on Gaza and the increasing numbers of uh, innocent casualties there. The FA, the Premier League and individual clubs have not made any statement about it. The Guardian understands senior executives within football who are Jewish reached out to the FA on Wednesday to urge it to speak up or in some way commemorate the loss of life in the Hamas attacks. The Department for Culture, Media and Sport, the British government, said in the light of the attacks in Israel on behalf of the Secretary of State, we'd encourage you to mark the events in line with previous events where sport has come together. Keir Starmer also said the Wembley Arch should be lit up. Uh, Meanwhile, Arsenal have spoken to their squad about the wider implications of posting messages around the conflict on social media. Uh, Ukraine fullback Alexander Zinchenko published a post saying, I stand with Israel. Egypt midfielder Mohamed Elneny has changed his profile pictures on social media to a Palestine flag neither player has been told to remove the posts or profile pictures they've been made aware of what the reaction and impact could be from those who viewed them i was looking at our downloads in the last month we've had loads from israel and loads from palestine and we just send you our love and we hope you are okay this podcast isn't the place that will have the answers to this 
and uh, perhaps people come to this podcast as well for an escape. Um, I hope that is not us excusing talking about this issue, but uh, um, sort of feel whatever the FA do, they will or don't do, they will get criticism from somewhere. And that'll do for part one. We'll be back in a second. Uh, welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, we've got a live show, everybody, and uh, we still haven't sold out London or Manchester, mainly because those venues are bigger before the people who are uh, playing Bristol and Dublin and Brighton get full of themselves. Uh, Ellis James, Troy Townsend, Philippe Eau in London on the 13th of November, John Bruin, Nader Manuha, and the Will Unwin Anecdote in Manchester on the 15th. The live stream uh, is the 22nd in Brighton. Um, so wherever you are in the world, you can watch it. Tickets are on sale at theguardian.com slash fwtour23. Please come along. The home nations, it's really Scotland, isn't it? Who uh, who have a, you know, they've got, they're in such a brilliant position. One five from five, Robin. It's sort of mad when you look at, they've got Spain and Norway in their group and maybe they got them at a good time early on, but they go to Spain tonight and they've got a friendly on Tuesday against France. They don't care about that. Spain have improved since that defeat, but it probably doesn't matter. No, well, the, I think the good thing is Scotland don't, if they lose, they still could qualify and they still probably will. So it's it, it's great for them because it's not like they have to go there and think, oh God, we've got to get a result. So actually they could probably play without a bit of fear. I'm not, still not that, I think Spain probably will win. They've got this ridiculous record, I think. The last home Euro qualifying defeat was in 2003 for them. You know, they've obviously right. got incredible players and they, you know, they are going to be heavy favourites, but I'm not that, still not that impressed with them. And the last few tournaments, um, I, I actually saw them, I did them at the um, Nations League in the summer and they have got better since then. But it's just, it's like, it's possession for no purpose. And I feel like that's still a little bit the case. It's a kind of cliche, but... They're not a great watch. Are you saying Spain need to get it launched? Is that what you're Absolutely, suggesting? yeah. Um, John Bruin TM. They do. And Scotland have Scott Mc, super Scott McTominay, who is the second highest scorer in qualifying. He's got more goals than Haaland, than Kane. It's Lukaku is leading it. He's got six. I mean, and he's you know obviously got he won the game for Man United. I mean, he's going to be on top of the world. Yeah, yeah. he scored both in the 2-0 win over Spain, Ed. I mean, sort of, we touched on it on Monday, but have I been misreading some Scott McTominay? Like, 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 I don't know where to place him because I did probably slightly foolishly just put him in a McFred, he's quite good, but he's not quite good enough bracket. And I might be completely wrong. I think for Scotland, he plays a bit more advanced. Is that, I, I don't watch many of them, actually, but he obviously gets into goal-scoring positions and and is quite good at putting the ball ball away and and that was that's what happened for united at the weekend wasn't he came off the bench with no time left and got himself in the box and got on the end of a couple of balls and yeah fair play to him and i think scotland this is great a, a great story under steve clark because he really has transformed them he's an amazing manager i think um when he was in the premier league it was, it was a while ago now isn't it but but that west brom team i think they came in the top 10 and then he had a bad start to the next season and was gone. And that was it really pretty much for him. And his amazing experience, you know, worked under Mourinho um, at Chelsea at the first time around. And and he's really transformed Scotland into a, into a real force. And yeah, I suppose McTominay is sort of the symbol of that sort of swashbuckling style and really amazing athlete. He can, he's 
he can you remember he was posting his 5k times and it was during lockdown they were really really quick like 16 minutes or something like that and, <laughs> that's ridiculous that's winning a park run isn't you it? know he, yeah absolutely <laughs> but he, he's that's that's what he is number one i think he's a proper athlete who maybe not the technically the best but it's working for scotland uh, Wales beat Gibraltar 4-0 um, in a friendly yesterday. Uh, that's ahead of playing Croatia on Sunday. And looking at it, they are uh, on seven points from five, same as Armenia. Uh, Turkey are on 10 points from five, Croatia 10 points from four. Ben Davis, Kiefer Moore with two, and Nathan Broadhead. Will Gibraltar be disappointed with that, Paul? Going to our Gibraltar expert. Well, Gibraltar are in a mess. They're in an absolute mess. They're obviously a very small nation and they're punched above their weight for a lot of their their history. But yeah, they're in a really bad state. And there's a real feeling of frustration, I think, amongst Gibraltarian fans that they're going backwards. They've got a coach who's picking unpopular players, uh, sort of picking his men over slightly more interesting options. And you've got an FA that's pretty much not functioning. They, For example, they didn't send a women's team to the Nations League because basically... They didn't want to. The men in charge didn't want to. They wanted to save the money, I think. So they were the only team, I think, in, in the whole of Europe. Although um, San Marino may, maybe don't have a women's team. But basically, they opted not to send a women's team, which was a really terrible gesture. Uh, so, yeah, Gibraltarian football is in a pretty low ebb, which is a shame because they, they really have defied expectations and got some incredible results when you look back in the past. Uh, an eye-catching performance from uh, Charlie, son of Robbie Savage for... Uh, Wales there so yeah uh, Croatia is a big game for them and then Northern Ireland and Ireland are really really basically out of it Northern Ireland uh, will no longer be able to qualify if they fail to beat San Marino on Saturday off Denmark and Slovenia win their games but that gives them more hope than you would suggest they have three points from six games Uh, the Republic of Ireland have three points from five games and are a long way behind the France Netherlands and Greece they play Greece and then Gibraltar uh, Friday and Monday. Hey, Paul, you're flying to Mongolia. Tell us why. What are you going to do? <laughs> I am. So I'm I'm off to watch their qualifiers. So the Asian football qualifiers are absolutely brutal. For the lowest ranked teams, they, they start today. In fact, if you're listening on Thursday, they start today, the first legs. And it's 10 games. So the lowest ranked teams play in these 10 games. That's two legs. And if you lose, you're out. That's your World Cup already finished and it's an absolutely brutal system uh mongolia have drawn afghanistan so i will be going out to see them play uh and the reason for that is i once uh, owned a football team in mongolia i co-owned a football team for about three years there totally accidentally sort of a series of odd events led to me owning this football club so i'm going back out to to see this team try and get through the first round uh which is going to be really tricky for them they're definitely underdogs but they've come a long way in that they lost 14 nil to Japan in 2021, Mongolia. But they've actually started to piece things together lately. Uh, and they're, one of their star players is a, a kid called Gamba. He's actually, I think he's not a kid anymore. But we, uh, when I was working in Mongolia, we brought him to Barnet in 2017 to have a, oh, a month wow. playing there. And it was kind of an amazing thing for this kid. He, he'd grown up, uh, his training was like chopping wood in minus 20 degrees. It was proper rocky stuff, you know, like the one with uh, even Drago. But he was a tiny little guy, uh, but really skillful little winger. And he had no opportunities outside of Mongolia to really sort of further his, his potential. But he was obviously the wonder kid of Mongolian football. So we got him over to Barnet for a month and he did brilliantly. He um, he scored a few goals. He scored against Jose Mourinho's son, who was in goal for Fulham at the time. And he almost, I think he could have signed except for the visa issues. And then he went back to become the first professional Mongolian player uh, in Europe. 
so he he was at Pushcast Academy. So it'd be really nice to like meet up with some of these guys again and and see some people that I spent three years of sort of very hard experience trying to run a club in Mongolia with. <laughs> In the Guardian book, right? Can read more about it. There is a little bit of that in the book, yes. So um, what I will say is after the time I was there, so 2018, Mongolia had what I would regard as the harshest World Cup qualification campaign in history. In then 2018, their campaign for World Cup 2018, they lost to East Timor. So it was, again, just one two-legged match. They lost to East Timor and quite comfortably. But East Timor packed their team with Brazilians who were actually not properly naturalised. Ringers. Yeah, ringers. They were total ringers. Mongolia were out... They moved on. East Timor then, I think, got knocked out by someone. And then FIFA said, oh, yeah, that was completely wrong. Uh, sorry about that. But it was too late. So Mongolia were already out. And that was their qualification campaign. Oh, kind man. of shows how hard it is, isn't it, really, for, for these teams. Um, Ed, you wanted to mention Pakistan's first game at home since uh, 2007. Yeah, it's, I, I should just say it's 2014. My fault initially, I said that it was 2007. But I've done some uh, <laughs> some more research on this. And, yeah, it's really, uh, really... Interesting. I mean, talking about uh, teams that are on a bad run, they they have lost uh, their last twelve matches and haven't been able to play at home since. Yeah, well, competitively anyway, since two thousand and fourteen, because of issues with the with the football federation. You know, they're still under a normalisation committee in in Pakistan. They have been for the last four years, but hopefully, this is going to be the start of something big. Because as as Paul mentioned just now, that they've got the first leg of their uh, qualifier away um, against Cambodia on on Thursday. And fingers crossed that there's going to be something to play for in the second leg when they come back uh, to Islamabad on Tuesday. Now, the game has to be played in the daytime because they have the floodlights there aren't good enough to play in the evening. So they've got to kick off at 2 o'clock, but apparently it's not going to be too too hot at that time. And there's four British-based players, uh, including uh, Issa Suleiman, who used to play for Aston Villa. Actually, sorry, he's not British-based anymore, but he, he was. He's now playing in Azerbaijan. Uh, and there's a guy called Otis Khan who plays for Grimsby at the moment. He's been um, at Sheffield United in the past. Um, and it's really, really exciting. You know, imagine that. The first time in nearly 10 years that you the, the fans are going to get to see their, their team at home. They've been having to play in other countries uh, since then just because of some of the issues in Pakistan as well, politically. But yeah, fingers crossed they can at least give, give themselves a chance of, of uh, getting through this qualifier. Uh, Dave says, can Paul please let me know how the Cosray side are getting on? Despite getting one of their lovely tops, I have to admit I'm not kept up to date with every kick of the ball. <laughs> well, the Cosray team, um, so very, very tiny island in Micronesia. 6,000 people didn't have a football when they entered the competition this, this summer, their first ever futsal competition. Went to the tournament and then finished as runners-up. So it was a bit of a miraculous effort, really, from them. They did have a fair few Koshrayans who live on the bigger island of Pompeii, so it wasn't quite the miracle it sounds like. But yeah, football's going strong in Micronesia. And I'm going to do another shameless plug. Please do. Yeah, I have a podcast called The Sweeper with uh, Lee Wingate, and we talk about the more obscure outposts of football. And I'm actually writing a sequel to my book, Up Pompeii, about me coaching the world's lowest-ranked football team uh, in Micronesia. And it's a sequel to that, which brings it up to date, including the world's biggest defeat in history of world football, which took place just after I left, I like to say, um, and goes all the way up to today. Um, so, yeah, if you want to listen to 
uh, at sweeper pod and I'm, I'm writing my sequel which is only available to people who um, sign up to the patreon for the sweeper well go and do that everybody Lawrence says will Max's vendetta and ill will towards Luton now end after they signed a pod contributor's son uh, yes uh, Andros most well known for being son of panelist Troy Townsend uh, has joined Luton good signing wish him the best of luck listen I said it'd be funny if Luton got no points I also would love Luton to stay up now they've got some points I think it'd be absolutely it would be marvellous if they managed it Uh, we mentioned on Tuesday's EFL pod it looked likely that Wayne Rooney would become the Birmingham manager he has done that and lots of people pointing out that Jamie Vardy and Wayne Rooney come face to face on the 16th of December uh, when uh, uh, Birmingham take on Leicester at home this has happened before I think since sort of Wagatha Christie so it shouldn't be the headlines that not uh, since the trial I don't think that would be the first is it not since the trial yeah He's been in the States, hasn't he? So. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so something to look out for. One um, for your diary. Mm, not all Birmingham fans totally enthused, as we discussed on Tuesday. And John says, not a question, just a shout out to Norwich's fantastic World Mental Health Day video. One of the best bits of awareness raising I've seen this area for a long time. Um, I mean, it's been viewed, Robin, hundreds of millions of times, I think. And it's interesting with these videos, isn't it? Sometimes you just get it right. And... Uh, I think some people, I mean, if you haven't seen the video, you you know, it's two men sitting next to each other, clearly don't know each other, but go to the game. And then, yeah, maybe I don't want to give it away, but it, it's worth watching, isn't it? Oh, superb. Um, you know, there's so when you're scrolling and, you know, you see a video and it's like two minutes, you know, with our attention spans, usually you're like, nah, this is going to be too long. But it is, it's well worth watching just what a great job they've done because it's so simple, but it's really mm. quite, affecting and poignant and it just just a reminder just to check in on everyone and you you don't know what's going on you know in people's heads it's just as i said simple effective and just absolutely brilliant so well done to everyone involved with that totally yeah it is okay not to be okay and that'll do for part two part three kieran Maguire and kevin day from the price of football podcast uh, will join us uh, to plug their book shamelessly Uh, welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. So we've plugged our own book enough. Uh, let's plug someone else's book. Um, Unfit and Improper Persons, An Idiot's Guide to Owning a Football Club um, by Kieran Maguire and Kevin Day and their producer, Gar Kilty from the, the Price of Football podcast, which is an excellent podcast. And Kieran and Kevin join us now. Hey, Kieran. Hi, I'm Max. It's a sunny morning here in Liverpool. Lovely. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Max. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. It's nice to nice to see. We normally, when there's a football finance issue, Kevin, we normally go to Kieran before you, Kev. I hope you're not insulted. Uh, no, I think it's the very best thing you could possibly do. <laughs> As I keep telling random strangers in the street who have taken to stopping me to ask about amortisation, say so you've got the <laughs> you've got the wrong one. <laughs> um, why did you write the book, Kev? I'm not very good. At- business matters and so I didn't realize that I actually had a two book deal with Bloomsbury as so I, I, I wrote my first book which came out three years ago today and then I had a phone call from my publisher Matt it was lovely to say about the second book I went oh that's, that's great and he said no no we have to it's in the contract right <laughs> and he he suggested that we do a book based on the podcast and basically we wanted to do a, a snapshot of the, the financial state of modern football, but we didn't want to do a textbook because a Kieran's already written the 
the classic textbook, if you like, about football finances. And B, we we just didn't want to do a book that was like chapter one, transfer fees, chapter two, the women's game. So we came up with this idea of um, creating a fictional football club, West Park Rovers, a, a Sunday league team, and taking that team from the Sunday league into the Europa Conference. Um, it was going to be the Champions League, but Bloomsbury rather strangely said, well, that, <laughs> that, that stretches credulity a bit too far. So well, it's a fiction. It's a made-up club. We can do what we want with it, surely. Um, but we, so it's just an excuse. It's just a way of using that to, to examine the finances of football at every level, right from the very start, Sunday League, which is a very expensive place to be, right through all the divisions, but also as a way. So, yeah, we, we create a women's football team, and that we use that as an excuse to examine how the finances of women's football. We talk about our, our academy team and so on and so forth. So the reason we decided to do it, apart from being asked and being financially and legally obliged to do so, was that I think, and I, I partly blame Kieran for this, I think football fans in the past two or three years, in a way that never existed when I was a younger fan, have become obsessed with the finances of of football and I've partly to do with the grossly unfair distribution of the money in the game uh, partly due I think to things like the Super League but partly due to existential panic on the part of most football fans that their club may not exist this time next year I mean we we started the podcast in the in the the, the run-up to Berry going out of business and I I think we touched um we touched a nerve because we were so angry about it because Kieran was the only person out there giving the details of what was happening to Berry and how it could be stopped. And I think football fans all over the world kind of tuned into that. When I was going to Palace as a, as a kid, as a teenager, you didn't care. You, I knew that my club was owned by an accountant who ran a meat business. But the only reason I knew that is that every now and again, we would sign a player on the pitch at half time, and there'd be a cow carcass hanging next to him <laughs> <coughs> because Ray, because Ray Boy wanted to remind people what he did for a living, and and hopefully you could tell the difference, right? That's the key. Uh, what between the player and the cow? <laughs> yes, yes. Occasionally, yeah, but but we had you know most club owners were then local. The classic phrase, "local boys made good," but you had no interest in how your club was run, and you had no fear that it was going to go out of business. But I think. I think that's changed, and I think this book um, provides a service to those people who aren't accountants, who are you know, fascinated, worried, obsessed about their club's football finances, and hopefully this book is a is a funny way of explaining what's going on at every level of football in terms of of the money. And Kieran, there's like there is a good bit about the history of owners because like, as Kev alludes to there. There is this idea, I guess, in all football, our football used to be great and it's not great anymore. But like the owners are worse now and you hark back to like the dodgy local businessman. Was it better then or we just didn't know or care? I think there were a few zeros at the end of the the numbers in terms of what the clubs were losing. It, it was just bad. If you, if, you take, if you go back to the 90s and the noughties, the number of clubs that were going into administration yeah, there'd sometimes there'd be six, seven, eight in a single season. And I think we do have a romantic notion. And again, if you go back a generation, you know, Accrington Stanley was lost to football many years ago. You know, we lost Hereford United, all of these clubs that are so central to their local towns and cities. It, football has always been associated with dodgy money. It's, it was simply a case of we didn't have 24-hour 
carpet bombing in terms of social media, in, in terms of people being willing to highlight them. And we didn't have the fans getting organised the way that they do today. Some, some of the work that's been undertaken by fans at Charlton and Sunderland and other clubs into people who come in on a wave of publicity and then you start digging behind them. So, so yeah, we, we felt in terms of books that there's, there's not enough idiots in football already running clubs. So, so let's, let's just have a couple for South London. Is it, um, is it possible to buy slash own a football club, make money and be a good owner, Kieran? Um, you, you can do two out of three, but, but as Meatloaf said, uh, yeah, that's about as far as it goes. Um, there, there are plenty of good owners out there. You know, and... and we, we tend to focus on, but we you know the likes of Jason Stockwood at Grimsby and Andy Holt at Accrington and Mark Palios at Cranmere Rovers and so on. They, they get it. They understand it. But even so, they all say, I'm doing it, but it's going to cost me half a million pounds a year. And they'll go to the fans and say, this is how much I'm prepared to put in. If you want the club run by somebody else, then, then I'm out of here. Um, and, and most fans, I think, do buy into that. But do we actually want sustainable football? Because I think, I can't remember the name of the guy, but some bloke was talking about having long-term strategic decisions in this country instead of short-term ones. But as football fans, we're going, no, 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 you know, just just, just pile in, you know, just, just spend all of our money on an unknown 22-year-old from Belgium and he's going to solve all of our problems. And if it doesn't work out, then they forget you know, they've they they put the club really uh, at at ransom um, and in a very difficult position. Kev, have you? Um, I, I mean, it's like the, as as the title of the book suggests. You know, there's so much about fit and proper, and this kind of banging your head against a brick wall every time you hear about an owner who has passed this test and is guilty of either you know like horrendous human rights abuses right at the top to just like fraud and every possible an asset stripping at the bottom like does it can it does it ever surprise you like that or has any like have you ever seen anyone fail it i can't i can't think of anyone who has the irony is of our fictional football club is that kieran probably would fail the fit and proper person's test because he's intelligent sensible and knows about the finances of a football club i would probably pass it because i'm not in prison which currently the bottom line seems to be of the, the FFP rules in both the Premier League and the EFL, as long as you're not actively now in prison, you're pretty fine. And we see it with, you know, with Birmingham City. It's not just in terms of the financial decisions that are wrongly taken by, by some clubs, and not every club. You know, we, we spoke to um, the chair of Exeter City Supporters Trust this week, and Exeter are a fantastic, well-run fan-owned club, which is, and there's another argument about how far a fan-owned club can go, and they're great, and you talk to somebody like them, and you get really passionate and enthusiastic about the, the game being in safe hands, and then you see the owners of Birmingham City, who are perfectly sensible financially, sacking the manager on a whim because they fancy getting Wayne Rooney in. Then there's nothing that the authorities can do about people like that. What, what do you think the motivation is, actually, for a lot of these owners to own a, a football club? You get it if it's a, you know, a Tony Bloom, obviously, it's his club, and he, that's his, you know, he, he'll, he'll kind of you know, swallow losses because they're doing so well. I just don't understand why anyone would want to, like someone who's got no connection. What you actually find, we think that football is a big industry, but it's not. 
Yeah, I can buy a football club for a pound. Steve Dale did that to Berry. We saw um, a guy called David Hilton, who I think it's fair to say has a, has a colourful backstory. He acquired Scunthorpe United Football Club for three pounds. And for, for, for a very small investment, you get an awful lot of attention. If we, if we take a look at what's happening in other industries, Microsoft has just bought a games company, Activision, for $70 billion. You could buy every single Premier League club for that. But look at the amount of attention that Jim Ratcliffe and Sheikh Jassim. We, we had a story break in, in, in the last day or so about a guy called William Story, who is bidding to buy Reading Football Club, supposedly for $50 million. He's He's in four or five of the newspapers today. You wouldn't you wouldn't do that if you were buying um, a a furniture show, a furniture shop, or a, a plastic box company for exactly the same amount of money. So you you get the ego. Everybody in the town knows who you are. There's only ninety two owners. Yeah, it's a it's a very exclusive club, and it's a very cheap entry point to get into that club. Uh, yeah, just wanted to ask about multi club ownership, and obviously it's the here and present danger at the moment, or depending on where you stand on the issue, really. But do you think that it is a system that could work potentially? Uh, obviously, you mentioned Crystal Palace there, Kevin, and, and John Texter um, obviously has a, has a few clubs. And also his, his plans to potentially float that group on the stock market in the US in the future. Do you think that's it's a dangerous precedent potentially for, for our football or it could be a, a good thing? I think it's really interesting. I think there are people at UEFA who are genuinely concerned about the multi-club ownership model because if you get a club that eventually has an interest in 25, 30 clubs in Europe, that becomes a separate power block that is is a a danger to UEFA's decision-making process. The the thing with Palace is John Texter is trying to implement a multi-club ownership thing when he doesn't own Crystal Palace. He only owns 40% of Crystal Palace, which he says he regrets. He says he wishes that he bought the whole club because he has a large stake but no influence. But we've reached a stage as Palace fans that we it's bad enough worrying about Palace's finance and Palace's future. But every time we see a story about the clubs that John Texter also has an interest in, in Botafogo and Leon, you start to worry because you think, well, how's, how is that going to influence us? If he's struggling, as he clearly is struggling financially with the, those other clubs... What that what does that mean for us? And then, of course, the conspiracy theories start because we don't buy enough players in the transfer window. And everyone says, that's because John Texter can't afford it. Or the exchange rate between the Brazilian currency and English currency is, is fluctuating, so he can't. So it, I, I, it's a model that makes me very uneasy. But I know, again, I will pass this to Kieran for the correct economic answer. There are financial benefits. You, you get continuity of approach. Therefore, if you've got a promising player, you can... You can send into your club in Belgium or your club in Uruguay, and they're going to be trained. They're going to have the same sports science. They're going to have the same culture of of development, and then you can take them to the mothership. So, so that makes a lot of sense. There was something called Brexit, which happened a few years ago, which is absolute, actually turns out to be an absolute disaster in terms of English football clubs because you can no longer bring players at the ages of sixteen and seventeen from Europe. Fabregas came to Arsenal, what, 16 or 17? We've seen other players come across. Well, under the new rules, players can't move to, to England until they're 18. So therefore, by having uh, a, your multi-club team in Belgium or Portugal, you now recruit them, you park them there for a couple of years, and then you bring them to the club. So this is sort of a bit of a practical solution. 
I think the issue is going to arise that if we've got the FIFA World Club Championship, which is now going to involve 32 teams, well, you're going to have real conflicts of interest there um, because your Asian team could end up playing your European team. And in, in terms of the integrity of sport, if you've got two clubs owned by the, the same person, then there's issues. We, we've already seen in, in Saudi, Saudi Arabia Pro League, we've got four teams which are owned by PIF. Well, you know, eyebrows will be raised at some of some of the results there. And, and economically, it makes sense. You you get economies of scale, you get all of these sort of you know, the textbook benefits. But football isn't like any other industry because we still have an element of romance in the game. And that's destroyed to a certain extent by MCOs. Kieran, how, how do we stop bad owners? I mean, this is a, quite a big question. Like, is the regulator the right thing? Is the German model the right thing? What would, you know, the dream is what? That every club has fan ownership, fans on the board. And at the moment, you know, Cambridge are really well run, right? They listen to the fans. They're in a really great position and they weren't for a long time. But we're just beholden to, it's luck, right? If you're a fan at the moment. I think what we can do is that we can nudge things in the right direction. So, the regulator will make it more difficult for wrongs. And you know, in terms of the owners and directors test, we do speak to the EFL on quite a regular basis on the quiet. And I know of quite a few people who they've prevented from coming into football. So I think we are slowly moving in the right direction. But it's a bit like it's a bit like having a house. If, if you stick a burglar alarm on the side of it, it doesn't, it's not going to stop your house being burgled, but hopefully they're going to move on to somewhere else. So if we make football less desirable for Romans, then, yeah, it's a terrible thing. Then, then, then they can go to rugby or they can go to another sport or they go, yeah. And I don't want anybody to have to deal with these people, but ultimately football is my sport and, and, and we'll shift them across. Um, you do in the book, Kev, uh, it is noted that Kieran has never down a poo at a football stadium. Does, <laughs> will your fictional club have no cubicles because of that's Kieran's policy? Do you know what? If you've ever visited Bloomsbury's offices, these lovely 18th century Georgian townhouse offices, it's a very classy place, Bloomsbury, and all the people who work there are very classy. So Kieran casually suggested to me that perhaps we could mention this story about him never having a poo at a football ground. And I went, well, I'll put it in, Kieran, but there's absolutely no chance that the good people at Bloomsbury... <laughs> the good people at Bloomsbury, I love Dave. Oh, this is a wonderful story. We have to include this. This will show that we're down with the average football fan. Again, I'm going to have to pass you to Kieran for the grown-up answer because I've I've happily had... Well, not happily, because no, let's face it, no, 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 no one, no one, unless they really, really have to, will go to a male toilet. I don't, I can never understand. I remember going, I remember going to QPR once a long, long time ago, and and commenting on the fact that there's no toilet paper in the in the cubicle, and somebody said there's loads of toilet paper, but it's in the waste paper bin, which is like, hey, there's a waste paper bin, but be male. Wow. Well, I don't know why this happens. It's 2023, but male football fans seem to resent toilet roll hanging happily from a toilet roll holder and have to place it somewhere else. Yeah, of course. Shove it all down the toilet for one, don't they? Kieran says he's from South London, but Kieran's, you know, he's gone, he's gone Sussex, basically. So Kieran's a rather effete football fan. So he will explain to you why he's never... never. Does this mean, Kieran, you've not actually eaten anything? Do you not eat at football grads? You've never eaten something slightly suspect then? Oh, don't open that can of vegetarian worms. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I had a traumatic experience on the one and only time I went to Plough Lane 
which was 1985. And, and the state of the and, and I don't drink alcohol. I, I'm sort of, sort of semi-conscious about what I eat. And I saw the state of the toilets there, and I think it my my it's affected my subconscious right. yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as therefore just closed down when it, whenever I get sort of is an amber warning sign when when I'm near a ground. Yeah, it's a bit like on a, a train, isn't it? Like I, do you know what the thing is? I find it funny, but I can't recall ever doing it. I mean, I must have done, but I can't I can't recall it. Um, uh, Timmy says, which pod member is most likely to fail the unfit and improper person's test and why? I don't think we need to answer that question, Timmy, do we? We all know the answer. Um, uh, listen, chaps, thank you so much for coming on. I uh, really appreciate your time um, and good luck with the book. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you. Thanks, Kev. Thanks, Max. Love to see you all. Thanks for having us on. Um, on the subject of books, the Football Weekly book is out now, so don't buy their heap of shite. Um, you can... <laughs> oh, they're still here. Oh, they're still here. Um, you, can, you can get 15% off if you go to the Guardian Bookshop, uh, guardianbookshop.com slash football hyphen weekly hyphen book. But buy theirs too, of course. Just a couple of AOBs, because um, I'm sure it's a very long podcast. Uh, Andrew says, just wanted to add a plus one to the anti-dog movement that your pod now spearheads, blimey. Uh, you know, I, we need some balance, anyone, if anybody wants to pile in. Uh, a hand up from Ed Aaron's. Uh, I was, yeah. ref- it, was re- it was refreshing to hear, it's not just me who believes they have a, a right to not have a dog bound up to them in a park. What's next <laughs> on the agenda? I was, I was worried we're going to get cancelled, Ed. We haven't had that much uh, well, hate, but please. I'm, sh- I'm sure that my, that my dog um, would not be enjoyed by non-dog lovers because uh, she's very greedy. She's a beagle and she bounds up to everybody. And right. uh, yeah, so... But she's lovely. She's got really of soft course. ears and she's very friendly. Yeah. Do you know, like. after, I, after I said that in the pod, I sat in uh, uh, Edinburgh Gardens in North Melbourne with a lovely dog called Bob. It was a friend of, uh, a friend of mine. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought, oh, maybe I was wrong about dogs because this dog was very placid and lovely. Uh, Rose finally says, Dear Max, Barry and the gang, I thought you'd like to know, not everyone is having a vasectomy while listening to you. The pod is also extremely useful to combat the misery of seasickness. Despite a long naval history in my family, I once got seasick standing on a jetty. I'm currently working in Tokelau, which I presume, Paul, you've managed them at yeah, some point well, in your life. Near Samoa, near Samoa, yeah. isn't it? It's um, yeah. one, of the, one of the few places in the world without a football team, in fact. Oh, wow. The only way uh, to get home is a two-day boat ride to Samoa. I'm currently stockpiling the pod to get me through the misery fest, uh, pit of doom that will be my bunk. Please make it funny, but not too funny, as I will have pulled all my stomach muscles chundering. Wishing you all a safe week on lovely dry land. Uh, that is Rose. Thank you, Rose. Good luck to you and anyone else who would like to send us stories of seasickness or just vomiting while listening. <laughs> I, hope, I hope we don't get too many replies to that. Footballweeklyattheguardian.com is our email address, and that'll do for today. Thanks, Ed. Cheers, Max. Thank you, Robin. Thanks, Max. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Football Weekly is produced by Silas Gray with Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanderson. This is The Guardian.